You are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. I want to invite you to stand and open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 23. We're going to read five short but very, uh, very important, rich, deep, full, thick verses These are verses 44 through 49, and we're going to read these together. This is Luke chapter 23, 44 through 49. It says this, It was now about the sixth hour, that is about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, about three o'clock in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and they went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of God for us this morning. You may be seated. Let me pray for us if I could. Lord, we have been singing to you over the last few minutes about your goodness to us. We have been singing about your faithfulness to us, and we have been singing about... Uh, about how you bring us hope and about how you have come to save. On this Palm Sunday, we remember that uh, Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey, representing the peace that he wanted to bring to the people of that land and this land right now. And yet we read this text, boy, how heavy this is. And we think about this week, this week of Holy Week, how heavy that is. And we reflect on the events in our own lives, how heavy they are. So I ask God that you would help us in the next few minutes to hear some good news. In light of this text, and in light of the world in which we live, we pray this. We beg you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in the middle of a series uh, that Pastor Rick began called Crosswords. And uh, we're looking at the final words that Jesus spoke while he hung on the cross. The final words, even in his last minute. And uh, just a few minutes ago, I said to you, good morning. But um, the challenge is going to be for us today to hear goodness. Because when we look at Luke chapter 23, 44 through 49, we wonder if there's really anything good that comes out of it. This is a a pretty sorry and sad state of affairs that Jesus finds himself in. This this, this is a bad time. Last night, as we were putting our kids to to, to bed, my son Watson, who's in the fifth grade, when he prayed, he prayed this. uh, God, uh, help dad to tell the good news tomorrow. What a beautiful prayer for my son, one that I really need. Because, boy, when we look at this text, it's so hard. When we think about the events of what took place, oh, it's it's really pretty rough. Today is Palm Sunday. 
It's the day that marks Jesus's, the beginning of Jesus's journey into Jerusalem as he came in on a donkey. It was on that day that the people shouted, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Lord, as they waved palm branches, thus the name Palm Sunday. The irony of this whole event, though, is that Hosanna means he is the one who came to save or he is the one who saves us. But Jesus had no intentions of saving the people or saving us in the way that we think that he should or the way in which we think we expect that he should. Instead, as he indicated to his disciples, he was going to have a life that was going to actually come to an end. Palm Sunday is the start of Passion Week. It's the beginning of the final week of Jesus's life. So throughout history, we've referred to this day, not just as Palm Sunday, but also Passion Sunday. And as we have together as a community of faith been observing the season of Lent, um, we, we recognize that it's here. This is it. This is the final week of Jesus's life. And most of us have come today with burdens And most of us have come today needing some good news. But frankly, I think we're going to have to take a look at this. We're going to have to do some examination and some hard work to get at any good news this morning. As a person who's worked for kids, worked with and for kids for a long time, it seems that this question is the one that every single kid, every single person grapples with. What is it that I'm going to do with my life? It it would seem that uh, this question stems from the fact that fundamentally everyone knows that they have been given a certain amount of time and a certain amount of years. And so, well, you and I, we, we better make the most of it. But as we get older, we move through retirement, we begin to ask a different question as time ticks away. It's no longer what will I do with my life, but rather we begin to ask the question, What will I do with my death? Death. Uh, Well, I've got news for you today. It may not be good news, but it is news. In case you didn't know this, every living thing dies. Welcome to church. (laughs) Presidents die and horses die. Soldiers in training sessions die. Big, tough MMA fighters and professional wrestlers die. Athletes die, children die, movie stars die, trees die. Marine life dies, authors die, pastors die. What will I do with my death is the question that Jesus asked. But it wasn't the first time in this scene, this scene wasn't the first time that Jesus asked this question. Coming into Jerusalem on a donkey wasn't the first time he had faced that question. He faced it in the wilderness. He faced it in the garden. He faces it in the presence of Pontius Pilate. He faces it in the final hours. What will I do with my death? Today we look at this passage in the book of Luke. And we find that Jesus, in these moments while asking this question, he prays these final words. Father, into your hands I commit, some translations say, I commend my spirit. The last 12 hours haven't really been that good. In the last 12 hours, Jesus gathered with his disciples and he celebrated this meal, the Passover. It was the time in which Jewish people uh, remember the act of God, his act in Jewish history. When God sends the angel of death to pass over Egypt in order that God might declare his intentions to Pharaoh. His intentions were this, 
Pharaoh, let my people go. Then later on, he was betrayed by a friend. He stopped another one uh, who was involved in a, in a conflict with a sword. He was accused. He was put on trial. And then he was crucified by being nailed to a cross at the request of the religious and under the power of the pagan. And then after all the suffering and all the abuse and all the accusations of uh, after all being beaten to a pulp and, and after all the mockery and, and after being hung uh, like a side of beef in a locker, Jesus dies. He dies. He's dead. Period. That is our text for us this morning. Death seems so final, and, and everybody, not, everybody dies. Paul said it this way. He said, outwardly, we're wasting away. It wasn't that long ago that I was at a funeral. I was at a funeral of my, uh, my cousin's son. His name was Micah. He was three. He had cancer. I watched his dad with intention. I mean, I looked at his dad as he stood at the head of that casket. And I, I watched his dad as they closed that little Thomas the Train casket. It was the end. It was the most horrific thing that I had ever seen. Little Micah, three years old, his life was no longer his own. It seems like, I don't know if it seems like this to you, but it seems like this to me. It seems like our greatest enemy, death, it it, it seems like death consumes us. It mocks us and it, it laughs in our face. And in the end, it is victorious. And in this scene, it has taken the place of the one with whom those people had put their hope. He was the one they trusted. He was the one that they shouted was going to be the one that was going to save them. You notice that Luke didn't fail to, uh, he didn't fail to not mention that the centurion felt this finality. He felt the tragedy like I felt the tragedy on that day in the funeral. He understood the scope of the reality that in in these moments, this man who was an innocent man was dying. Luke didn't fail to let us know that the observers understood and they felt the the finality of this event. Because he tells us that they they, they beat their breasts and they went away. A sign and a symbol of sadness, despair, and sorrow. And it tells us that those who knew him, including those women who had followed him all the way from Galilee, well, they also stood at a distance. For they knew that this event was final. This was the end. And after reading this together, it seems as if there's, and feeling the events of our own lives, it seems like there's some kind of an injustice that takes place here. This is not right, is what we want to scream. Where was God in this event is what we want to shout during times like this. And in this scene, the world goes dark. Just when the sun should be shining at the highest point during the warmest part of the day, about the time that you and I should be putting down the sun visors and beginning to sport the Ray-Bans, there is no need because of the fact that the world goes dark. I, I, don't, I don't hesitate to confess to you today, I hate the dark. I don't like darkness Uh, darkness, that's where the wild things are. You know, in the dark, I can see no one and nobody can see me. In in the dark, I know that I'm going to encounter monsters, 
I'm going to encounter evil in the dark. Um, I know that despair seems to overcome me. In the dark, I'm powerless. In the dark, I'm out of control. In the dark, evil powers seem to be at work. In the dark, I drown in loneliness as, as if it was water in the dark. And literally, here in this passage, in the dark, death seems to begin to overwhelm him to the point that creation heaves. The curtain is violently, uh, the temple is violently torn in two, and with that he shouts in a loud voice this prayer that comes from Psalm 31. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he breathes his last. This is darkness. This is terror. On that day, the angel of death seemed to pass over him. This is death. You know, and I know, that in the end, death will overtake us. And yet, we're such a curious group. I mean, we're just a little bit knuckleheadish and weird because we walk around every single day acting as if my life is actually mine. This is our attitude. No one has the right to touch my life except for me. Did you know this? You're born with your hands closed. Did you know that one of your first words was the word mine? Did you know that the opposable thumb is such an amazing miracle? That you can grab and handle, hang on and to hold on to something, but yet we do that way too often with our own lives, pretending that they are our own. Here's how I know this. We, we buy in credit. We achieve and we save and we invest and we shop and we hoard and we build and we play and we exercise, eat right, and guess what else we try to do? Control our cholesterol. We start businesses because we want to make money. We quit smoking and we quit smoking because we have heard that it adds years to our life. As if that's really true. Do we really add anything to our life? We go to college and when we go to college, we ask this really important question while choosing a major. And the question is, how will I use my life? We max out our 401ks. We desire to retire in luxury. Essentially, what we say is this with this kind of attitude. If God wants my life, he better come and get it. And to tell you the truth, in one way or another, he does. The angel of death comes and it pays us a visit. And we die. It would seem that all that we have and all that we are, it's, it's actually just on loan. It doesn't belong to us no matter who we are. Not our, it doesn't matter our pedigree or our vocation or our bank account makes no difference. The whole thing is on loan. And in the end, it seems that God will take our life. He's going to rip us away from those who uh, love us the most and we love the most. He's going to rip us away from everyone and everything we've ever had. In the end, the one who so graciously gives life is the one who so unexpectedly takes it away. According to the prophets, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And it would seem after reading this text together, that we are no longer safe from God. The people of Israel discovered this time and time again, that this God is not a God who is, should be trifled with. And it seems like, it would seem like as we read this text together, that Jesus, well, he knows this full well. On this day, 
Christ commits his life and his death to God. You know, in the end, it really takes a lot of guts to give your life and your death back to God. It takes a lot of guts to admit that our lives were never ours in the first place. Because our only reassurance that God uh, is the promise that God says that he is, is that he will never allow anything worse to happen to us than he allowed to happen to his very own son. How does that make you feel? We spend our lives trying to get our lives out of God's hands and into our own. But in the end, God gets our lives anyway. No wonder the little girl in Sunday school said, I really like Jesus. Man, I hate God. In C.S. Lewis's most famous um, Narnia Chronicle, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the children, Peter, Susan, Lucy, and Edmund, you know them, enter Narnia through a wardrobe in their uncle's home. Edmund has already given his allegiance to the witch, and he sneaks off to join ranks with her. The other three children go into the house of the beavers, a wary but hospitable pair. And, uh, and they, they asked, um, they, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver tell these children now at this point, with these events going on, that they will take, the, they will take them to see the king, Aslan. Is he a man? Lucy asks. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. A great lion. The lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else they're just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He is the king, I tell you. That's really interesting in light of this text. That's really interesting in light of this scene. In this scene, we've already learned that God isn't safe. And at first reading, it would seem that he is not that good either. Especially with his own son. I think that there's some truth that we find in the scripture. I think the truth is this. God is not safe. Do not mess around with God. Some of us know what it's like to be stalked by God. Some of us know what it's like to be tracked down. And some of us know what it's like to be pursued by a living God. It is a fearful thing. And while it is true, that is not what has taken place in this text. That is not what is happening to Jesus here. That is not what is going on here. Even though it might seem like it is at the first reading of the text, it is absolutely not. We have to be really clear about one thing here. Jesus did not give up his life. What Jesus did was he gave away his life. Here we see in this scene a beating that not even Mel Gibson could describe. He's completely exhausted, totally out of energy. He's been suffering tremendously. He's been beaten down by those whom he he loves. And this Jesus does not give up. 
He does not throw in the towel. He's not down for the count. Rather, Luke records this very one last but very courageous and final move by Jesus. Jesus is doing what we are totally incapable of doing. Jesus is giving away his life. These are not cries of abandonment here. These are, to, these are cries of declaring togetherness here. God the Father... God the Son, God the Spirit. Jesus, what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is giving him back, giving himself back to the Father under the power of the Holy Spirit. This right here is Jesus giving himself to God. In these words, Father, I commit, uh, into your hands I commit or I commend my spirit. Do you, do you know what is actually taking place here? Do you know what Jesus is doing? Jesus is acting as the, as, an, as the rabbi at his very own funeral. Throughout history, pastors and priests and rabbis who were officiating funerals, they would commend the dead person or they commend the dead person to God. They might say something like this, receive this person into the arms of thy mercy, into the blessed rest of everlasting peace and into the glorious company of the saints of life. Why? Well, it's evident because God is not safe. There was no one who can speak for themselves to God. There's no one who can stand. There was no one there who could stand to commend Jesus to God. No one was worthy to be a mediator here. No one was worthy to officiate this funeral. No one is capable of commending themselves, especially somebody who is dying on a cross. He was seen as a blasphemer, so they wanted to purge him from the earth. In their eyes, he was an enemy of the law. He was an enemy of the state, and he was an enemy of God. In this scene, what we should initially see is that it's the, you know, the good guys versus the bad guy. But in this spirit-led move, he cries out in a loud statement to the Almighty that should not send shivers down our spines. He moves to commend himself when he should have been gagged and forgotten about. He reveals something to us about his true identity, who he really is. He is no enemy of God who gets his life snatched away from him. He's perfectly innocent. We read it in this passage. He's the perfect sacrifice. As the book of Revelation tells us, he is the lamb that was slain. He's the lion of Judah. He was and is God. Do you understand what this means? It means that God is on the cross. At first glance, it looks like his life is being taken, but rather, no, 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 that's not happening. He chooses under the power of the spirit to take his life out of the hands of the people and put his life back into the hands of God, his father, the one whom he so intimately knew. Luke, in this passage, he's not just describing some kind of bloody scene. Rather, Luke is, he's trying to tell us something about the identity of Jesus and the activity of God and the way in which God works. It is in death that we learn that the son pursued the father, not the other way around. In other words, Jesus, he was so close, so one with God, as we read about in John chapter 17, that he, could, that he could do what we could not and we cannot do. He commended himself by handing everything over to God. God doesn't have to take Jesus' life in this instance. 
pursuing God doesn't have to pursue the Son. The Son pursued the Father. And we see it in these final words. We see it in this final prayer. When, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, you know how this went. He began with an endearing title, Father. And on this day, in this text, he prays to his Father. He says, Father. This prayer comes from Psalm 31. Some commentators suggest that, that Jesus knew and learned this psalm as a young Jewish boy. And he probably learned it from his mother. And on this day, he prays it to his Father, much like you and I used to learn. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. Father, Abba, Dad, Daddy. This is an intimate title. It, this is what children say. When Jesus calls God Father, we're We're invited into this wonderful and tender moment, as rated R as it is, this moment of confident resolution. This one who's on the cross is dying. He he should be giving up, but instead, he's taking charge. Essentially saying, nobody took my life. I gave it. And I committed my life to the Father. Will Willman, who's a professor at Duke Divinity School, says this, when the son commends himself to the father, presumably the son is giving himself to that which he is already. This is essential to Christian doctrine. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is one. In this scene, we see that not just the Son suffers, but all three suffer. And also we know that creation heaves and that the world goes dark when the Creator dies. In dying, the Son is dramatically demonstrating the unity of this divinity, the deep unity at the heart of this diverse trinity. It is not God taking it out on His Son. Instead, what we see is we are seeing God's action here. God, in the second person of the Trinity, embraces the cross in an action of love. This is good news. In this scene, Jesus, man, he's in total control. He's given himself over to the Father under the power of the Spirit. Luke wants to know, us to know that Jesus, he's the true God. He's not some image or some idol that his disciples invented. How could that be? That is an into- a totally impossible concept. The crucified God is not the kind of God that humans invent. Our gods look a little different than that. Our idols are just mere images of our supersized, ideal, mirrored selves. Our idols promise things that they want. You know what they promise? They, they promise continuity. They promise immortality. They promise us well, they promise us security. Our, our idols make us better athletes. Our, our idols put us into positions of power. Uh, our idols put us into positions of authority. And you know what else they do? They give us influence beyond our wildest imaginations. These are what, these are what our idols do. Our, our idols give us what we want, not what we need. But Jesus here, well, Jesus, he takes charge. 
He takes charge in a manner that only God himself with all of creation behind him and all authority is capable of doing. He's, uh, Jesus takes charge because he is the only one who is capable of praying this prayer. He's been beaten, whipped, destroyed, mocked, abused. He suffocated. And then you know what he does in the midst of all that? When you and I would be ready to give up, he assumes command by uniting himself with the one with whom he always was with in unity. Idols don't promise things that we need. Idols promise things that that we want. A true God gives us what we need. We have here this claim, this cosmic claim about who the Almighty God is, and at the core of the one on the cross is this theological implication. God is on the cross. Jesus is God, one with the Father, one with the Spirit. Do you know what this means? Do you know what this means? I mean, it's time to hold in your hats. Hang on to your seat. As I said in the old days, I'm about to start preaching. Here we go. Do you know what this means? It means that you and I are no longer safe from God. Think about this. Put your mind around this. If God is willing to come to us, to be abused by us, and as if he's willing to embrace death on a cross out of a sheer act of love, this means that God will and does and is going to the places that are darkest in our lives and in our world. If you want to know where God is, wherever it is dark, he is there. He goes to the ones who are hurt the most. He goes to the ones who are in agony the most. That is where God is. You and I are no longer safe from God. This is what we learn in this text. Luke tells us that the skies grow dark and creation begins to groan and the temple could no longer hold itself together because the curtain which shielded people from a holy God because it's fearful to find yourself in the hands of a holy God. Well, that at that time was violently torn in two. Many commentators discuss the symbolism of this whole thing. But one of these, this one thing is for sure. No longer is God housed in the safe confines of the establishments built by human beings. He has escaped these kinds of places. He is not there. The, t- the, the temple curtain has been uh, torn in two. So wherever there is any darkness, wherever there is any suffering, wherever there is any tragedy, he is there. That is where you will find him. He sits in the hospital room. He's in a building that's blown up by a truck filled with fertilizer. He stands with the dad who is looking at a Thomas the Train casket. And he's also with the boy that is in that casket. He's there when our kids rebel. He's there in our herd. He's not some idol, some homemade God that that is simply a supersized image of ourselves. But this action on the cross by the Son, it's an act of love under the power of the Spirit. We now know that He doesn't give us what we want. He, because he is God, gives us what we need, and he knows that we need him with us there at every moment. In the dark, you and I no longer drown in our loneliness. What do we need? Well, we we need a God who will go to any length to make sure that we, you know, we're not alone in our suffering. 
We need to know that we are never safe from him. As the son pursues the father, so it is an indication that the father is pursuing us. He's there. So together as a community of faith, we've been in a 40-day journey. We've created disciplines in order to identify with the suffering of Christ by putting away some practices to create room in order that we might understand and know him and be right with him. In essence, we've, we've created a discipline for ourselves and we've created a discipline for ourselves together in order that we might know him more. And yet, as we enter into this final week, we begin to think about the full impact of the crucifixion. It was gross. It was awful. It was tragic. It was, a, it was an event of cosmic proportion that we cannot really get our minds around. In our suffering, though, we find out in this week, reading this text, that we are never alone. Why? Well, because in giving himself away by praying this prayer, we, we know that this was an act of love. We know that him in praying this prayer, in that we are no longer, thanks be to God, safe from God. This, this means that, could this mean, perhaps, if God in the, on the cross, in this final move before he dies, in this courageous action, it, could it mean that if he is willing to share with us in our suffering, perhaps, maybe, it could be, we might be able to share with him in his resurrection? As for next week. I want to invite Kyle and the band back up. And I'm hopeful that you've heard good news. I'm hopeful that God has answered my son's prayer. But I want to say this last thing to you. This week, uh, the final week of Jesus, Passion Week, where we remember that he came into Jerusalem for one specific task, to identify with us in our suffering. To pursue God so that it might be indication to us that God, the Father, is pursuing us. In this week, we allow him to be the rabbi at our times of death, in our times of suffering. So, I, I think with the help of God... Knowing these things, we, we might be able to do like Jesus has done. Understanding that as he pursues the Father, the po Father pursues us. We respond by saying, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. There's a rabbi who has already done that for us. And so we respond in this way. I think it would be really good if we prayed together. It has seemed as if God has been here speaking clearly to us. When I was a little boy, my mom would make me pray like this, mostly because she didn't want me to be a distraction to my little brother. 
hands closed. I think she would have preferred handcuffs, actually. But what I think we should probably do today is this. We pray with hands open. I'm going to invite you in your seats. We're going to pray now. Sit with your hands open. Maybe you just want to put them on your lap. You're not going to use your opposable thumbs to hang on to your own life. Hands open. Father, into, into your hands I commit my spirit. Let's pray that together. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Lord, we understand now after reading this text that Passion Sunday is good news for us because we are not alone in the darkness. We do not have to run from a God who tries to steal our lives. We're thankful for the fact that we are not safe from God because what this shows us in this action, this final and wonderful move of Jesus is that you will go to any length in order to get us, to be with us, to make sure that we are not alone in our suffering. And so we open our hands to you. You have our lives and we trust you with them. And we wait and trust and hope that if you are willing to share with us in our suffering, perhaps it could be that we might be able to share with you in your resurrection. So we respond to you with open hands and voices that sing. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.